Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Man, it's so good to see everybody. And it is busy right now. It's so busy for me. Uh, and I'm sure you, you feel the same way, right? And some of you might be on spring break, but like a lot of times spring break is just an opportunity to get caught up, isn't it? Um, which is a reminder, if you're an LFBI, spring break is an opportunity to get caught up, okay? Um, but I, I, as soon as service is over, uh, I've got a jet. I've got to, literally, I'm, I'm, I've got to go to get on a jet to go out to the certainty conference. And so I want to make sure, not the certainty conference, I call the conferences the Discipleship Conference in Atlanta. And, uh, and so I want to make sure that, that you are reminded that all that will be live streamed and you can find that stuff on the Living Faith Fellowship web- website. You can follow along, meet with your small group, meet with some friends, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, hear all the cool stuff that's going on at the Discipleship Conference. And then when we get back, it's uh, immediately right into spring retreat. And uh, we did spring retreat a little differently this year on purpose. We wanted it to be affordable. We wanted it to be convenient for people. Uh, with COVID, it makes it difficult. A lot of people couldn't quite make it down to the fall retreat. We've got a lot of new faces since then. So uh, the fall retreat we always do down in Arkansas, and it's a big to-do. It's a little more expensive, but it's worth it. Uh, this retreat is only $20. And then at the end of the night, you get to home, go home and sleep in your own bed, which is, I know Eric really wants to amen that. Right, so I'm going to be preaching um, at the retreat this, the, the spring retreat this year, uh, on two things. The first thing is how to destroy a church. That's the first message, which is kind of a weird title, and I know it sounds a little edgy and crazy, um, but tr- I'm not that edgy and I'm not that crazy, so uh, it's it's not. But uh, we're going to be talking about what it looks like uh, for cultural Christianity to destroy the work of God. Okay. And then uh, in the next uh, message, we're going to talk about how to, how to deploy the church. And we're going to talk about what it looks like uh, when, when the, the Holy Spirit of God and the movement of God is actually at work and allows us to spread the gospel throughout the whole world. What does that look like, especially all of that in terms of Kaya, specific to us in this ministry? And so I want you to come join us for that. Please sign up. Please hang out with us. Um, but today I've got like three messages I need to preach and I've got to fit it into a very short period of time. So I need to know that you're going to be, you're going to be focused with me. Okay? You're going to be focused and, and that, uh, that you're, you're waiting on the Lord the same way I am. So last week when we were together, we witnessed Paul in his element. In his element. Paul as the investigator. Paul as Sherlock Holmes. He was Sherlock Holmes in it. Uh, he runs into these 12 guys on his way to Ephesus. 12 Jewish guys, and uh, he begins asking them a series of questions to reveal where their faith was at. You guys remember this from last week? And uh, he's probing, and he's asking these questions, and he asks first about the Holy Spirit, and what he discovers is that these men have not received the Holy Spirit through believing in Jesus Christ, which is how one receives the Holy Spirit. And then he continues to ask questions, and he asks them a question about baptism. And uh, then he discovers that they only know of John the Baptist's baptism, which means 
that they're anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They're anticipating the man Jesus Christ, but they didn't know that he'd actually come. No one one had made them privy to that fact. And so they were kind of in the dark, and it was this series of questions that Paul asked that helped reveal the fact that what they believed was incomplete, and he showed them a way more perfect, right? Similar to the experience that Aquila and Priscilla had with Apollos, right? He showed them a way more perfect, which was to believe on Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And what we learned was that as as we uh, evangelize, as we go out into the world and we want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, how important intentional question asking really is. And we, we need to involve ourselves in the lives of other people. We really, we need to get in the dirt with them. We need to get in the muck and the mire, and we need to live life with them, and we need to be willing to ask hard questions. And I got an, an awesome uh, text message this week from someone who told me that, that, that they were more intentional to ask questions of one of their coworkers this last week, and God used it uh, to spur on a one-on-one Bible study. Okay? Praise God, right? And this is the way that we need to be thinking. We need to be unafraid to get involved in people's lives and ask, ask those hard questions about spiritual things that we might learn more about people and be able to share the gospel. Amen? Amen. Now this week, we are going to be looking at what an authentic faith looks like, how it manifests itself when someone has authentic faith. Now, um, I have to be honest with you, I've already preached a message on authentic faith really early on in the Acts series. So what we're referring to this is, is more marks of authentic faith. It's like part two um, to that. And, uh, and so let's pray, shall we? I got real loud there, so I didn't mean to. Uh, let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us uh, as, as we uh, get into his word today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I come to you uh, again uh, just reliant. And um, I feel very, very inadequate this morning. And it's, it's as though all of the studying that I've done and, and, uh, and the rehearsing uh, of the sermon that I've done, that, um, that's kind of produced uh, some uncertainty in, in me, in fact, that, that I don't actually know how to teach this message today. And uh, I need you. And I need your spirit, and I need to be reminded that uh, you're my friend, and that you're here, that you're present with us. And so, Lord, I pray desperately that you would set me aside, and, and that whatever it is that I need to say, that that is what would be said, and that uh, your word would reign in our lives, the authority of your Bible would take over, and that there wouldn't be a single person in this room that can say that they're leaving this building today the same as, as they were that when they came in. That all of us would be that much more full of faith, that much more devoted, that much more knowledgeable of the fact that we actually are unqualified to do any of this, that we just don't have it in us, that we're weak. And that we require a Savior to empower us, to give us purpose, to give us hope, to give us peace. We want to live an authentic faith, but that, that means we need more of you and less of us. So help us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So an authentic faith, 
Now, last we left Paul, uh, he was with this group of 12 men, and they had received Jesus Christ. That's how that, that bit of the story ends, right? They accepted Christ, and they got baptized in his name. And then upon Paul's touch, do you remember this? Upon his touch, the Holy Ghost came upon them. Verse 6 of chapter 19 says, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about 12. Now, if you remember, or you've been around long enough in this Acts series, you've heard me address how the Acts of the Apostles is a historical narrative. You've heard me say this, yeah, these exact words, that this is a historical narrative, a very specific time in the history of the church where things were done in a very unique way. And because this is a historical narrative, and it's unique, this is not where we get our doctrinal instruction. All right? That's just an important thing that you need to know when you're reading the Acts of the Apostles. And in terms of that narrative, there is an underlying theme of transition. This is a transitionary time period. And so all the things that are happening here are transitionary as we end up and we find ourselves squarely in the church age. Okay? The age of grace. The dispensation of grace. And Paul lays out in Romans through Philemon what that's supposed to look like. That's where we find our doctrinal instruction, how the church should act, behave, live, and minister. That's where we find that. It's important to know. I feel like I should say it over and over again. Uh, in this particular moment in Acts chapter 19, Paul's ability to bestow the Holy Ghost on these men's lives is unique to the history of the church. We don't see this happening a, a whole lot and, it, and, and really, it only happens in the book of Acts. We discussed briefly last week that Paul performed gifts like these as confirmation of his apostleship. Right? Now, I, I feel, like, again, like it's important that we reiter reiterate what an apostle is. It's a very unique position. Okay? Unique to a small group of people that, that knew and, and saw the resurrected Jesus Christ and were given special gifts that they might deliver the word of God into parts of the world where the gospel did not yet uh, exist. Okay, so these apostles, these were unique people, and Paul was one of these apostles. And so in this instance, we see Paul with the ability to bestow the gift of the Holy Ghost and his indwelling, and that is not a thing today. Okay, nod your heads if you understand what I'm saying. That is not a thing today. Okay, today... This is a completely integrated process. One, one bows their head before the Lord Jesus Christ and for the very first time puts their faith in Christ and repents of their sin and everything changes. In that moment, the Holy Ghost then indwells them. In that moment. All right? And we saw this evidenced in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and in Romans chapter 8, verses not, verse 9. And because this uh, was a transitional time in the church, we often see the manifestation of tongue-speaking in new converts, right? If you've ever read Acts, you've seen us encounter tongues before. And when someone speaks in tongues, we know from the context of the passage that they're speaking in foreign languages, okay, with phonetic structures. These are actual languages, right? They're not gobbledygook, okay? It's not made up, it's not a made-up angelic language. In fact, Whenever the angels speak in the scriptures, they speak in the tongues of men. Okay, you understand that, right? And so whenever we see tongues, what that is is a special anointing, a special gifting that happens in a moment. 
It's, it's, again, it's very unique. And what happens is these people begin to have the ability to speak in languages, foreign languages that they couldn't speak in before. That's what's going on here. This happens in Acts chapter 2, Acts 8, and now here in Acts 19. The gift of tongues was the sudden and miraculous ability to speak in a foreign language. Now, what is incredible to witness in the conversion of these men is that when they were saved in Christ's name and became indwelled by the Holy Ghost, that their speech was transformed. Now, okay, so I, let's put aside let's put aside that historical context and that doctrinal context for just a moment, and let's talk about it in terms of an inspirational application. What does this mean? How, how should we look at this? How should we as church-age believers look at what's happening here? And I believe that speech should be transformed in the life of a Christian as well. Not in the sense of tongue speaking, but in the sense of verbal expression. That believers in Jesus Christ ought to speak differently than they did before they knew Jesus. You know, before I had a walk with Jesus Christ, I was very profane in my language. Some of you, this might resonate with you. Uh, there was no words in the English language that were off limits to me, right? I spoke in a very uh, vain and, and a vile way, okay? It's what, it's what I knew. It was acceptable to me. Uh, but that, all that changed. All that changed. The moment I accept Jesus, accepted Jesus Christ, there was a new conviction in my life to change the way that I speak, change the way that I interact in dialogue with other people. Uh, you guys know that I told you last week that I was looking to buy a, a new car. Well, I, I did. I bought a car this week. Yeah. I had complete peace. All of the nerves and anxiety, it was like lifted. It was fantastic. I went in. I haggled with the guy a little bit. Felt very good about that. I got a good price. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Nice. Now, um, so I have to sell the, uh, the crappy car that I was driving before. I've got to sell it, okay? And, and by crappy, it's a fine car. It did, it, it, it's right. It was good, good to me. It's got 220,000 miles on it. But I was cleaning it uh, yesterday, and it's disgusting inside. It's disgusting, okay? Um, we've had it as long as we've had kids, I think. We've had that car, uh, nine years or so. And, uh, and, and the residue of the presence of one-year-old Shepherd is still firmly, firmly there, right? Like, like I'm, I, I, I found one Chick-fil-A waffle fry <laughs> embedded just beneath the plastic, like you're getting down inside there. I do not know how, that thing was hard as a rock. I do not know how long it was there. I have no idea. Now, the thing about having this new car is, is I, this morning, I, I stopped at Quick Trip, because I always have to eat something before I preach, because I don't want to get fidgety, so I stop at Quick Trip, because that's where you can get a very healthy breakfast. <laughs> so I stop at the Quick Trip. I always get in the pre, I know some of you are real fancy, and you go to the Quick Trip counter. Okay, I'm not that fancy, all right? I go to the pre-made stuff. Okay? Oh, yeah. Mm. Some of you are like, oh, disgusting. <laughs> Shh. I know how you eat. Okay? You're not better than me. So I get one of the, the pre-made wrap things. It's like a sausage or a cheese inside of it. And, um, and I get into my new car. 
Now, the old, the old habit, okay, on a Sunday morning was that when I get this sausage, I don't know what they call it, okay, I have no idea, it's a sausage thing, wrap thing, was to take the trash and to, th to throw it on the floor, okay, with the belief that in a week or two I will go back and I'll pick it up, right? And then what I do, this is, this is literally what I do, so I, then I take, because I don't want all the carbs of the wrap, because I'm health conscious. And so I take, I take the extra tortilla that I don't need. It's like unnecessary amount of wrapping happening. And I roll down the window and I <laughs> throw it. Now I've checked with, I checked with Philip Murphy. He said that's not technically littering. Okay? He's a police officer. He knows. Okay? It's, it's an investment in the birds. So I'm, I, I throw the tortilla out there. I know it'll be, it'll be gone by the end of the day. A crow will come and get it. Disgusting creature will come. Okay, so, but the thing that I realize is that in this new car, there, there's no choice. I have to have new habits. The, the way that I approach this vehicle has to be completely different. And the same thing is true. It's like the moment you accept Jesus Christ, you know that there's something that has to be different about you. You are not permitted to behave and to speak the ways that you spoke before. And that's what happens in these men's lives. You know, just last Tuesday, um, you know, the timing is always so perfect. Sam talked from Proverbs 13 about speech, right? And about the tongue and how dangerous the tongue is. I mean, can we revisit that for a second? In James chapter 3, verse 3, it says, this is a verse or a passage that he spoke from. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth. Okay, and a bit is like, a, I don't know much about horses or like a, the equestrian lifestyle. That's not... I don't know anything about that, but a bit is that thing that it's like a bridle that you put in the horse's mouth and you, it helps you steer it. I don't even know if steering is the right term, but it, nonetheless, that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they, they are turned about with a very small helm, aren't they? Right? I don't know much about boats either, but I've seen movies and they, they seem to be turned about by a very small apparatus on the, beneath the, the, the ship, right? Oh, here we go again. <laughs> Lydia, I swear. I saw that was you. So listen. <clears throat> Yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth? And so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. They know that is true in, in California, don't they? There's just a, a little fire. Don't, someone throwing a cigarette here or there can produce a wildfire that goes outside of the control of anyone. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of, of things in the sea is tamed. I mean, we could tame all kinds of animals. I mean, at least kind of anyway. Right? You saw Tiger King. It only goes so far, right? Like at some point, someone's arm is going to get eaten. Like it's just, that happens. But, but nonetheless... The tigers were tamed, in a sense or so, right? We can tame animals. Some of you guys have dogs living in your house. A century ago, these were wolves. You understand? 
It's crazy. But the tongue can no man tame. Isn't that true? It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men. With the same exact tongue that we bless God, we also talk trash on other people. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and and, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God, out of the the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not uh, not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Neither a vine, figs, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who can bridle the tongue? Who can bridle the tongue? You know, we're all susceptible to the evils of the tongue. Every single one of us in this room I don't care what you think about yourself. This is true for every one of us. We are all gossipy people who can't keep our nose out of other people's business. We are backbiting and overly critical. We're all convinced that we are so smart and that everyone wants to hear our opinions. And we stir strife and contention, oftentimes in the name of concern. I was just so concerned and you think that that's some sort of justifier for, for meddling. No. No human on earth can tame the tongue. No person can do it. But the Spirit of God can. Here we see men whose mouths are transformed by the power of God, and our lives can be too. But what does that require from us, though? How does that even work? How do I personally relent power of my tongue to the Spirit of God? How do I ensure that my mouth will produce the maximal amount of glory to Christ Jesus? These are all questions that we as believers ought to ask ourselves. So here's key point number one. Our tongue is tamed as we submit our mind and emotions to his word. It's the only way. I mean, it seems real simple, doesn't it? It sounds simple anyway. See, what God wants is to control your tongue. And the way he wants to do that is for you to give God your wandering mind. And give him your unguarded heart that it might be transformed through the study of his word. He wants you to take your unbridled thoughts. I mean, it it only takes about 10 minutes into any message like this one before your mind just goes wherever it wants to go. Most of this room right now is thinking about something entirely different. Like, I know that. Okay, I taught for 10 years and I've preached for 15. Okay, I know how it goes. The mind is crazy. It just wanders wherever it wants to wander. And what God wants you to do is to take that mind and give it to the study of his word. And I understand the heart, too. The heart is so unguarded. We let down the walls all the time, and we let corrupt things in, and it drives us and steers us all over the place. And we find ourselves, you know, feeling emotions that are completely incompatible with God's words. We feel depressed. We feel down. We feel frustrated. We feel angry. And these things lead us wherever they might lead us. 
And what God wants us to do is take our unguarded heart and lay it open before his word that he might transform it to match his own. That our heartbeat might follow the rhythm of his. And slowly his opinions, his character, his intentions, his will become our very own. Hebrews 4.12 says this of the Bible. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have, we have to do. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking to yourself as you sit there, here I am at church, I'm in this service, I know Christianity, I've grown up in Christianity. I've been around it off and on my whole life. I've been in churches, I've been in youth groups, I've been around it. I've heard preaching. And yet my life isn't any better than it was all of those years ago. Nothing's changed. Now I want to explain something to you. I want to explain something to you. The difference between being a Christian and living as a Christian and having real transformation in your life, I mean authentic faith, is whether or not you choose every single day to take the words of God seriously. That's it. So, so I'm, not, I'm not trying to be braggadocious here, but the difference between this church and the ones that you've been to before is that we're overkill on God's word. We take it incredibly serious. And everything we talk about, everything we talk about, we want it to come from that book. So what, what God is asking is if, if, if you say to yourself, well, I've been a Christian for a while and my tongue still seems unruly. I still speak angry to my family members. I'm still mean to my friends. I'm still gossip about people that I know. I'm still contentious in my workplace. I can't seem to get along with people, or, or, or sometimes I just put my foot in my mouth. What God is saying to you is lay your heart and your mind before me daily, and let me conform you to my image with my book. It's how I always intended it to be. See, the Bible undoes you, and then it puts you back together. The Bible has a way of setting your conscious mind on Christ's righteousness, Okay? So this is how it works. May I explain it to you briefly? Okay? I'll, I'll explain it psychologically. What God wants you to do is to take your conscious mind, your intentional mind, and choose his book. But then what happens is over time, as you continue to do that, it becomes a, it becomes a pattern, it becomes a habit of who you are. What happens is slowly your subconscious mind begins to receive and be permeated by those truths. It happens, you don't even know that it's happening, but slowly the things in the back of your mind, the quiet thoughts, begin to be consumed by who Christ is. And then eventually what happens is your behaviors that seem so unruly, just by default, become good. It's so weird how it happens. It's like one day I was acting like a jerk, and then one day I wasn't. Suddenly, because I've allowed my mind and my heart to be saturated with the truth of who God is, I just accidentally became a good Christian, authentic in my faith. It's like I loved Jesus so much that just loving him 
eventually became enough for me to look like him. When your heart and your mind are stayed on Christ, your tongue will be protected from presumptive, insensitive, and evil words against others. So what we learn is that authentic faith, the kind that looks like yielding our mind and our heart to God, results in changes in how we communicate. We want the way we communicate to change. Amen? Amen. Okay, moving along. There's one, there's one marker for you. We got others to cover. Pray for me. Acts 19.8. An authentic faith produces a determined devotion. An authentic faith produces a determined devotion. Acts 19.8 says, And he, Paul, went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. So he's in Ephesus. He, he says goodbye to the dudes, okay, the 12 guys, and best of luck to you. We don't see them again. I don't, I don't know where they went. I mean, I don't know what they, maybe they went back to Ephesus with them. I don't know. I'm sorry. Can't fill that gap. But he himself goes to Ephesus, and he goes and he preaches for six months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. And I wish I could just talk about the kingdom of God for a while here, but I don't have time. We'll let, we'll let Eric teach that to you in D2, okay? Next week. You're covering that next week. Nice. See, God's timing, right? Yeah. See, Paul would go to the synagogues. It was his tendency. He'd go and he'd speak boldly. For three months he did this, teaching, arguing, and persuading. Now, we say argue, okay? We don't mean, I don't mean like argue like, you know, contentious talk, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the persuasion of people. It means using reason and logic from God's word, reasoning with people, begging with people, provoking them, and showing them a better way, a way more perfect. That's what we mean. So he's persuading people to believe in the reality of Christ and his spiritual kingdom. And as we've seen in times past, as believers begin to speak boldly, what happens? What happens? What's happened throughout Acts as we look back in time, and we think about Acts previously, whenever, whenever God starts to work and people are speaking boldly, what happens next? Oh, this isn't that tricky. I'm not, I'm, not trying, I'm not like Sam. I'm not trying to trick you when I ask you a question. Satan responds, doesn't he? Satan is faithful to run interference. Christians who speak up for their faith always face difficulty. They always do. There is no way around it. The enemy has way too many eyes and way too many workers to let any of us get away with preaching the gospel for too long. So any liberated Christian is going is to run into a trial, a temptation, and a stumbling block intended to silence us. And that's what happens here. In this case, like many before, Paul's success is met with a stumbling block. Verse 9. And when divers, okay, that's, this word divers means uh, just a group of people, a diversity of people is what it implies. These, this group of people, they were hardened. They were hardened or determined to be disagreeable in their heart. They were determined to come up against Paul. And they believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude he departed from them. Okay, now, these people, they're frustrated they disagree with Paul, and they speak, spake evil of the way, okay? Now, 
If you're like me, every time you hear that, you can't help but think of Mandalorian. It's, I'm done. I'm done. Every time I read in Scripture the way, I can't help but think of that. But, but listen to me. I'm telling you, they, they, they just ripped off Christianity. See, historians know this. Historians know that the, the phrase, the way, or followers of the way, for the first three centuries of the church was, was interchangeable with the phrase Christian or Christianity. And I love that. I love it. It gives me chills. Because what that means, so the word Christian means what? Okay, which is a state of being, isn't it? So when we say someone's a Christian, we mean that by their very character or by, by, by their state of being, that they are a follower of Christ. But here, when you hear someone say the way, what it does is it implies that there's a lifestyle associated with that. That there's a path, that there's a way of walking, that there's a purpose, that there's a will in being a Christian. Not just that I am a Christian, but that I live as a Christian. That I do the work of God, that I do his will. That's why I like that so much. I love it. It's, it's, it's more than an, an entirely new state of being. It's an entirely new way of living, the, the way is. But I want to take note of something remarkable. Paul was a man born for adversity and adaptation. We've talked about this before. He never lets the enemy prevent him from capitalizing on ready souls. He wasn't easily swayed by resistance and only ever saw it as an opportunity to adapt. Okay, this is the man, we're talking about Paul, this is the man that says, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, this is some real eye of the tiger stuff right here. Okay, what he's saying is that in any given moment and in any given circumstance, the only thing that he is willing to let himself see and to believe and to know is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's, that's gospel living. Now there's a principle at play in Paul's ministry that should also be true in our own ministry, and that's our next key point. Listen, we yield to opportunities, not to obstructions. We yield to opportunities, not to obstructions. We don't bow to our circumstances. We don't let them control us. We've got objectives. You know, over the weekend, um, over the weekend, collegiate wrestler Spencer Lee of Iowa won his third straight NCAA championship. Did you follow that, Braden, at all? You're done with wrestling. You're done. Forget it. You know this guy? You're familiar with him. You probably came up. Yeah, he's a monster, all right. After the final match was, was won, they were interviewing him and asked him this weekend about some of the adversity he faced coming into the match. And his response was, well, I didn't want to say anything because I don't believe in excuses, but I'm wrestling with two torn ACLs. One of them he tore eight weeks ago. Didn't tell anybody about it. See, this kid, Lee, he wasn't focused on the impediments to the prize. He was focused on the prize itself. People are willing to do that for a trophy. Are you willing to think that way for souls? 
Paul wasn't going to let these enemies of the gospel box him in and prevent him from the potential of fruitfulness. His decisions were not going to be governed by the obstructions of men, but rather by the opportunities that God laid before him. And my question to you is, are your decisions made this way too? Is this how you make decisions in your life? Are your decisions made this way? Or do you let negative circumstances change your objectives? I mean, I'm not trying to make that, like, I, I want this to be a very simple question. I, I want you to really think about this for your life. Does the, does the gospel become secondary the moment it gets complicated? Does the, does the Great Commission and being used by God take a back seat the moment some sort of trial or temptation or stumbling block is presented to you? So what did Paul do? Okay, so what, I mean, what are we talking about here? So he's preaching in the synagogues and then all these people come and they start talking trash on the way, Right? They're talking bad about Christianity, and they're starting to sow seeds of division. And so Paul recognizes here he has two choices. He could leave Ephesus and go somewhere else, or he could stick it out because he's looking around, and he's saying, look at all these baby disciples. What am I going to do? And it says, in verse 9, and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus, and this continued by the space of two years. So when the enemy seeks to silence Paul, he looks around and sees the work of discipleship's not done yet. He knows his objectives. He knows what fruit looks like. And responds by continuing his work in the school of a, a man named Tyrannus and continues to train the converts for two years while he's, while he's given an evangelical platform in this school. And so what you have to know about this region of the world during this time the way that it worked is there were these philosophy schools everywhere, okay? And there was some sort of philosophical mind or guru that sat as the, as the dean or the president of the school, and he would teach, and people would come, and they'd listen. And he would invite other instructors, and it was discourse. That's what they referred to it as, it's discourse. Okay, sometimes you'll still use, hear that phrase used in university, discourse of some sort. And so there'd be dialogue, and, and there'd, be, there'd be question asking, and, 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 uh, and, and so... This school, the school of Tyrannus, was a place. Now, Tyrannus, we don't know if he was a believer or not, but he was certainly a sympathizer. And so what he did is he invited Paul, look, man, I know that it's rough out there, but I know you've got work to do. It's, it's clear that you've got people following you. Why don't you come into my school, be a safe place, and you can disciple these people, and then you can also try to convince the rest of us of this guy, Jesus Christ. And it was an opportunity and Paul took advantage of it. Why? Because he wasn't done. He wasn't going to wuss out. Two torn ACLs wasn't going to keep him from doing what he, what he needed to do. He had an objective. You know, this reminds us a little bit, me a little bit, of our campus Bible studies. Doesn't it? When you think about it. I mean, Paul went to this campus and he was like ministering. And he's probably old like me, so I feel, it makes me feel better about it. Like, like I can go to any campus and I can minister without... My age being an issue. Keep that in mind. But look, I mean, he's doing campus Bible study and discipleship, and, and evangelism is happening there on campus. I don't know. I'm not going to preach about this today, but you should study it, Bible study leaders. What's happening here? What can we learn? It's kind of interesting. 
Paul's faith to persist results in, the, in a great furtherance of the gospel. When we, think, when, we, when we think this way, when we think the way Paul did, when this is our mindset, life might be harder. Can I just warn you of that? I'm going to say that up front. This is a hard way to live. It's just rough. Right? It's just, it's, it's just going to be harder to live this way. But listen to me. But the fruit will be more than abundant. So the question is, is the fruit worth it? Are the souls worth it? Is the ultimate reward worth the pain and the suffering? It says in verse 10, listen to me. So that so here he is in this school. He's teaching and disputing and trying to convince people of Christianity. And he's discipling his disciples. And it says, listen, verse 10, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, Now, when we see Asia here, I want you to know it's Asia Minor. It's this region that we've been in for a while, right? Galatia, Ephesus, uh, Macedonia, Asia Minor. But listen to me. He's here disputing. And what's implied, what's implied here is that as he preaches in this school in time through the work of the disciples, that, listen to me, every person in all of Asia Minor has heard of Jesus Christ. I mean, not even everyone in Kansas City has heard of Jesus Christ. You know, he may have had shut doors along the way, but the door that was open for Paul was so great that the word of the Lord Jesus came to every Jew and every Greek in all of Asia. All had heard of the Messiah. So what we learn here is that authentic faith presses through difficulty and produces fruit. That's what authentic faith does. It doesn't fold. It doesn't fold. It has no quit in it. That's what authentic faith looks like. Now, in authentic faith, here's, here's our third marker. Are we ready? One more. This is it. And authentic faith distinguishes itself from the fake. From the fake. It distinguishes itself from the fake. The fakers. Fake is, fake is like the worst word, isn't it? So harsh. Fake. Poser. When I was a kid, poser was like the worst thing you could possibly be called. Right? Call me anything. Don't call me. That's true. It's true for skaters, isn't it? In the skating, skater world. Poser. You don't want to be a poser. Okay? You know, Miles Cheadle works for Tibble. Seems like an... He works for Tivle, Tivle, the, ju- the jeweler, the best jeweler in the Midwest for sure, probably in the United States of America. People coming here from all over the world to buy jewelry at Tivle. Now, over the years, uh, Miles has seen many Rolex watches, amen? I expect you to amen too. You're nodding your head. I, I, I bet Rolex, he owes you one for discipling him? That's not how that works, bro. <laughs> oh. Oh, okay. All right. We'll leave that between the two of you. Over the years, uh, he has certainly gained an eye for the unique qualities that a Rolex has, right? You've seen many of them. And if not him, certainly the jeweler on the staff at Tibble would be able to spot a fake from a real very easily. 
Is that right? Good, because I was going out on a limb on this illustration. <laughs> and that's because there's always a difference between the authentic and the faith of uh, the fake. Always, always. No matter how good the fake is, there are always differences between the real and the fake. And we know that the master forger is Satan. He's the master forger. He makes the very best in bootleg spiritual merchandise for humanity's pleasure. It looks like the real thing, but without the sticker price. But listen to me. Whenever difficulty arises, when hardship comes, when depression knocks at your door, when anxiety overwhelms you, when people treat you poorly, when church feels cold, when you're tempted to sin, this is when our faith is put beneath the magnifying glass and discovered for what it really is, real or fake. Our experiences, our trials, our difficulty, they always put, they always put our faith under the magnifying glass and expose us for who we really are, always. So let's look at the genuine work here in verse 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. All right. What? This is so wild, right? Okay, listen to me. People are taking essentially what, you know, the, the Bible also calls these napkins. Okay, it's, it's, like, it's like what they would wrap the dead in or wrap th those who are medically ill in. And, and what someone who has leprosy or boils, a problem of their skin, might have napkins on their skin. And what they would do is they would take that napkin and they would have someone deliver it to Paul. And this person would, would take it and they'd come to Paul and just the sim simply the act of giving him this napkin or this apron or this, this cloth would heal that person on the other side of the city who's sick, and it's, it's crazy. What a crazy time to be alive, right? What? It's wild. And we've established that Paul himself had unique gifts, but with that said, the world is full of charlatans. Just, just, just look at this story, and there are people in the world who want you for a small fee, right, to, to, to purchase a prayer cloth from some guy, some televangelist lunch, can I just tell you right now, and listen, I know that you are the most skeptical generation of like all the generations, so I don't feel like I need to dwell on this, that those people on TV are lying to your grandma. Okay? Don't buy into the lies of these, these charlatans, these fake, quasi-charismatic, cheat, lying cheats are tricking people. Don't fall prey to that stuff. Okay, we'll put that aside. Don't, follow, don't fall for the forgery. You know, we was, when, you know, I taught high school. I always cracked on the kid wearing the bootleg Yeezys. All right, this kid comes to class. All right, the Yeezys, the new Yeezy just came out. The kid comes and he walks into class. And I know for a fact that dude didn't spend 500 bucks on a pair of tennis shoes. I'm like, dude, you work at McDonald's, man. Those shoes are fake. And I just say it between him because I wasn't trying to call him out. Just, just give him a hard time behind closed doors. Like, bro, I know your shoes are fake. 
quit posing. I mean, look, your jump man looks like, like he's laying down. <laughs> That's not a jump man. But we can't, we can't fall for the fake. You, you know what I'm saying? We can't fall for the fake. Now, here's what the fake looks like. Verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them. So the story gets weirder here, y'all. Okay, just prepare yourselves. To call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chiefs, uh, chief of the priests, which did so. Okay, so listen for a second. This is what's happening in our story. There's these seven sons of Sceva. They were most likely a part of the Sanhedrin of Ephesus. Okay? And, uh, and these guys had a reputation for being able to, you know, do supernatural things. Okay? And, you know, this is how it always works, right? Paul's in town. And he's casting out devils. And so, so, so Satan's got some sort of forgery. You know, the, the novelty is high. It's like, you know, when, when like, um, what's like one of the fancy purses? The women's purses? Like, Bur Burberry coach? Coach? That's right. Like when coach is popular, right? Whatever year it is, 2019, and coach is popular, everybody's looking for coach purses for cheap, right? And some people are willing to pick up the forgery. And so, because demand is high for this kind of thing, these men are taking advantage of that, and they've got this, this fake spiritual scheme at work. Now, they may have even been convinced that they had powers. I don't know. But here you have the situation where people are, are embodied by evil spirits. They're possessed. Now, I'm not going to back down from the fact that people are possessed today, too. But these people are possessed, and they need someone to deliver them. Okay, now listen to me. These men would go, and the way I imagine it, and I'm implying this a little bit, is that their regular modus operandi was not working. Okay, they did some sort of thing. I don't know, maybe there was some incense, and you know, like they do in the movies. I don't know. And they're doing all this voodoo stuff, and it's not working. It's not working. Okay, because it's not of Christ. There's no power in it. And so at some point, they throw a Hail Mary. You guys know what a Hail Mary is, like in football? Like when you have all of your, sh you've shot all your shots. You know what I mean? Nothing's, nothing's falling. And so at the last second, you're just like, oh, I hope this works. So these guys uh, decide to employ the name of Jesus Christ. It's a forgery. They don't know Jesus. They're not associated with that. And they, they even say it. It's so funny how they say it. We adjure you by Jesus, you know, the one that Paul preaches. You know? This reminds me a lot of Simon the Sorcerer. We're not going to go back to look at that, but you can. But these men wanted spiritual power. And they wanted it their way, on their terms. And they were willing even to steal the name of Jesus to get what they wanted. But listen to what happens in verse 15. They get exposed. They get exposed. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> okay. You, listen, y'all. You know it's a bad day when a demon is talking trash. <laughs> That's a bad day for you. I mean, you can think these guys are like, uh-oh, wrong play.
So the evil spirit starts speaking and talking trash. And he says, look, Jesus I know. I know Jesus. He healed the sick. He cast out a thousand of us from one person. He denied, he denied Satan for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. We know Jesus. He, he defeated death. We know his name. And we know Paul. We know Paul. He spread the gospel of Christ throughout all of Asia. He saved souls from darkness through preaching. He, he worshipped at midnight in prison cells. And he cast out devils. He healed the sick. We know Paul. But you, who, who are you? Now, we don't need to be Jesus. We're not Jesus. We don't need to be Paul. We're not Paul. But do the devils know your name? Are you a threat? Are you a threat? to the darkness of this world? I mean, honestly, I don't know whether or not any devil should know my name. But it sure makes me ponder. See, Jesus and Paul were a threat. And these men weren't. And they got exposed. And so the question is, are you a threat? And if you're not, is it because your Christianity is a forgery? It's inauthentic. It's ineffectual. Verse 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They got, listen, y'all, they got whomped on. This, this, this. This devil man jumped and beat up these seven dudes, stripped their clothes, took, it, took them right off them, buck naked. They go running out of the house. Now listen to me. I want to tell you. You know what? You know what? It looks like for a Christian to get exposed. It looks like going to heaven and realizing you'd have no reward waiting for you. Because you've wasted your life on stupid crap. And you thought when you could pull Jesus' name out, like a little voodoo here or there, like a genie, like a, like a magic genie, whenever you needed him, you thought that would be good enough. And you know what the Bible says about a person who wastes their life that way? That they're going to stand before God but naked and wounded of spirit, hurt in their heart, weeping, weeping in heaven. Can you believe it? Weeping because they'll know in a moment that they've wasted their lives. They lived a forgery. They had the power all along. You know, the, the crazy thing about a Christian living fake is that you had the power all along. Key point number three. The legitimacy of our faith always gets found out. 
always, always, and always will. You don't even have to wait to heaven. Someone's going to see the fakery. Just give it a month or two. You always get found out for, for being fake. So don't be fake. Be real. Go revisit key point number one and number two and get real. Listen to what it says, verse 17. Let's, let's look at the end of our story here. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. This story, this story about these guys getting, getting beat up, everybody knows about it. I mean, that, I mean, getting beat up and getting thrown outside. I had a friend in high school who literally stripped his clothes off of his brother and threw him outside in the middle of the winter. It was so funny. It was so funny. I don't know why I shouldn't have shared that story. I should have come to his rescue, and I didn't. I feel bad about it all these years later. I just sat and watched. Um, but everybody knew about it. And listen to, how the, look, listen to their response. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified because they saw a distinction. They saw a difference. They saw the fake, and they saw the real, and they came to appreciate the real all the more. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. I love how it says that. And they showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price uh, of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. They, listen to me. What happened there is they threw away millions of dollars. They threw it away because they saw it as evil. I don't know about you, I would say that's counting the cost. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So the gospel prevailed in the hearts of the people because of the authenticity of the faith that they saw, despite the inauthentic things that they also witnessed. People are going to see the real from the fake. The question is, which side are you on? That's the question. Do you have an authentic faith? We will know, we will know if your faith is authentic based on whether or not your speech is transformed. What comes out of your mouth? We'll know. Oh, oh, we'll know. You can fake it only so long. You can talk, all, you can talk to Christianese only so long before you get found out. We'll know. We'll know by, by how determined you are in your witness, whether or not you flee real easily whether or not you disappear from church for months on end. We'll know, we'll know, we'll know. We'll know whether or not you really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the creator of the universe, and that you owe him your life. We'll know. We will know by the legitimate impact of your ministry. We'll be able to look and see the fruit and to see, and to see if there are souls that are following you and that whether or not they're purposed and whether or not they're true disciples. We'll be able to look at them and we'll be able to say whether or not you are fake or true. We'll know. But more importantly, even if we can't, even if there are things that fall outside of our gaze, even if we can't inspect everything of your life, there's one that can. And he knows. He knows. And with that said, I invite you to worship the God of heaven 
And if you know that you've been struggling to act as a forgery, or maybe you know you've called yourself for a Christian for a long time and you've never actually put your faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day to give him everything you got. You want know, you know what salvation is? Take me. I have nothing. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just take me. That's salvation. And some of you need to make that decision today. And if you know you need to make that decision, if at any level you recognize there's been fakery, come forward. Meet with a the counselor. They'll be up here as we worship. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for an opportunity to look at your word. We need you, God. We need you. And there's so many of us that are just going along and we're calling ourselves Christians, but the truth is, the truth is, what we're selling is inauthentic, it's bootleg, it's, it's illegitimate. And we've actually not paid the real price. We've not, we've not paid the ticket price for what salvation means. And what salvation means is that we've got to give our lives up for yours. That's a hefty price. It's real simple, but it's, it's very costly. And there are those of you in this room right now who recognize, that even as we pray, that that's what you need to do. And so hear the Lord. God, I pray that you would, you would convict their souls, that you would work on them, and you would draw them out, and that they would, they would recognize that the price is worth it, is worth it in order to receive you and to have our lives changed. Lord, work on their hearts, even right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.